Welcome back to the Respect the Drive podcast. I'm Tedward of Tedward Drives and Winding Road Magazine. We're here at Garage 42 with the owner of Garage 42 and its sister, brother, or cousin company, Ren Scott. This is David Bamforth, and he's like a, a local car enthusiast who um, he likes to make his ideas happen. So, welcome. Hey Tom, thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. I'm uh, really excited to be here <laughs> in your own shop. Uh, uh, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, well, look, I, you know, like most of my friends at this point, I met you in a parking lot. Yeah, yeah, the same parking lot I met most of my friends, or at least the friend who introduced me to my other friends. <laughs> but for for background to the viewers, I mean, I think a lot of people know who you are from, or. Who, who follow me, they know you because of the Miata trip, because we, we drove across the country in a $1,400 Miata. That was rough. Yeah. Yeah. That was a, that was an experience and it was a great, uh, bonding opportunity. It was good. It was like, I felt you like you're, you're what, eight years younger than me? Nine? S- seven and a half? Something like that. Yeah. Seven. So I, you know, I, I was always fine with the younger people, but when I met you, it was like finding this like little brother. Now, the difference between you and a lot of younger people that I've met that I've become friends with is over time, their age shows through and I start to see like this immaturity and this, like, you're like, okay, okay. He's, he's 10 years younger than me. And you know, things happen with you. You were always more adventurous, but not stupid. And I'm, I'm like the most conservative person in the world when it comes to risk. You're quite the opposite. And it's balanced me out quite a bit. The fact that we're even sitting here right now doing this podcast speaks volumes to the to, to your influence on me. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I definitely like rolling that dice a little or at least making some calculated risks, <laughs> um, especially when it comes to business and uh, making really big dreams and actually trying to make them happen. Um, I at least attempt to pursue them. <laughs> Where were you? You're, you weren't born American. Where'd you come from? No. So uh, I was born in the UK, just outside of London, and then uh, lived there until I was three and then came over uh, with my parents and my sister and have lived here ever since. So basically uh, 20 years now. Where's the car passion come into play? Yeah. So uh, good. Good question. I uh, I was like always kind of into cars. Um when I was in like elementary school or middle school, it was definitely like the thing that was most interested um, or most interested me. Um, I used to our my on my mom's side, my nan and papa or my grandparents. Um, my papa would always send us like letters or like packages every like couple of weeks, and my sister would always get one with a comic book in it. Uh, I think it was called the Bino, which was like a British comic book that she liked. And I would always get Top Gear magazines every single time. Really? So no, have, it's funny. I've never had a Top Gear print magazine. No, I have a stack of them. <laughs> I have a full like couple shelves in my bedroom still still with all of those on there. Um, so I would always see those and look at the cars on them and look through the pictures. I'm dyslexic, so I didn't read anything in them but i looked at the photos and it was pretty cool and uh always pulled out any posters that were there and put them on my wall and um i had a couple poster cars as most of us did in elementary middle school so definitely had like a manual lamborghini Gajardo, um murcielago an f430 and an enzo those those are my four um and so i was i was like into cars quite a bit but i didn't have anyone 
else who even knew what Top Gear was when I was in elementary school or middle school. I was struggling to find it on TV or watch episodes of it, and I would you know find them online. Yeah, we had to da- we had to find them. Yeah. I remember when I was in college, so somewhere around 2006, 2007, I remember walking downstairs in my dorm and seeing some kid watching the Top Gear episode of the 997 Turbo. And it was that blue, it was like a night shoot. Clarkson's mm. driving it out of a parking garage. And I remember being like, oh my God, a guy who knows what, I know what that is. And the guy looked at me like, of course, the whole world knows what this is, you asshole. We've been downloading <laughs> it for you know, a decade. But uh, yeah, to me, that was like a big deal that somebody knew what it was. Yeah. Yeah. And especially at my age, you know, unless someone else's parents were, were British, like nobody else knew what it was, even if they were into cars. Um, there was like one other kid, George Britton, who... Uh, actually has has quite a strong relationship with ace performance um so somehow we've stayed in the kind of local community um but uh it was like just me and him who knew what top gear was and we would talk about it and eventually episodes ended up making their way onto onto the u.s tv i think on science channel maybe or something but it was like way too late at night for me to watch it so usually i had to wait for reruns to come on or i would have to record it or something um i just remember finding them so funny like the, the crazy adventures that they would get into and then you know ferrari's always breaking down or they would do the convertible challenge where none of their navigation would work and none of their none of their soft ops would work and well you'd see nuances on cars that you otherwise would never know i mean yeah. no one would know that like it's difficult to operate a ferrari navigation system like those weren't how yeah. would i know that um but so since then i mean you've you've, you've gone to you've gone through your 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 school years you've graduated as a mechanical engineer um, and you mentioned you're dyslexic. What, what is that? I guess, how does that come into play when it comes to you either creating something or, I mean, there's gotta be a pro and con to that, right? I mean, you've done more stuff than I've seen a lot of people do. And it's not just because of funding. It's because you are like fearless. And at the same time, you've got this thing that holds you back and makes things more complicated. But how do you navigate that? Yeah. Well, to a degree, I would say my first, like, big challenging thing that I ended up having to 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 go through the process of tackling and kind of getting over was was the sex so that was my first intro into like here's a big challenge or big well it's not really a dream or a goal but you know I, I had to figure out how to read and uh, how to function as as a typical you know human <laughs> um so I uh, I went to an elementary middle school that was focused for kids with dyslexia called Carroll School and by the end of that um I was, you know, reading at the same level as everyone else and pretty much functioning as everyone else, but it was it was really challenging for those for those 8 years. Um and it still carried into high school and and I was still um had uh like a tutor that I met with regularly in high school, but I went to a high school that was really supportive of kids with learning disabilities. So, um I I nowadays I'm really not of the of the thinking that that my dyslexia held me back in any way or or currently makes it any harder to do anything and it obviously was a big challenge at the beginning but now it it really doesn't affect me on 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 my day-to-day life um so i think that was probably the very first big challenge it was like okay like i fully came uh, came came through this challenge and came over it and uh and kind of reached the goal um and that that motivation is probably what gives me so much confidence nowadays to find other goals and other really challenging things or just big kind of crazy goals and to just take them on and just do them. Yeah, uh, that's a that's another thing. Like where <laughs> I was talking to Zach about this in, a, in another episode, but con- confidence, like he said something about being confident as a salesperson. 
And I was like, where the hell do you, where do you even get that? Because you are confident in a way that isn't overwhelming. You're not cocky, but you, you'll do stuff that I think, like I've told you, don't do that. We shouldn't do this. I mean, how many times have we gotten stuck in the truck? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, David, 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 we can't make it. And you, we, we do inevitably get stuck, but we also get out. I don't know where the hell this comes from. Why does your brain work this way? And how can you transmit that to other people? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting. There's, there's, um, I think there's different reasoning for different things. Like when it comes to driving, my, my ability to have very good spatial awareness is, is kind of a skill that maybe came, comes from the, uh, my, my brain functioning differently and my, my ability to drive large vehicles through very tight city streets is, is pretty good. And I do it completely subconsciously without even thinking about it. Well, I can attest your Raptor Cambridge Harvard Square skills are psychotic. Yeah. Yeah. And usually I can hear the person next to me, you know, grabbing a door handle or, or, uh, <laughs> I would like to say that I don't, I doubt you all the time. And I've learned to just accept that it's my own shit to deal with, not yours. Like yeah. there's people where like you're in the passenger seat and you're like, please don't, please don't do that. Whereas like when it's you, I usually realize I'm like, yeah, he usually gets by. We'll be okay. We'll be okay. Oh my God. We'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, uh, there, there's a whole bunch of science and understanding behind dyslexia, but there's really uh, the, the biggest thing behind it is that it really changes kind of the wiring, the way that, that brains can function. So even though it does cause this big, um, fall in the ability to, to read, it usually also comes through with some, uh, ability to be a really good problem solver and also be like a very fast thinker um there's a a long list of of entrepreneurs or business people who are dyslexic who even lots of them never even got over their dyslexia and can barely write nowadays but their their ability to take on challenges and pursue them through and uh problem solve is is definitely one that's probably greater than than your average non-dyslexic person. Do you think that contributes? Like you have an obsessive nature. When you find a thing that you like, it's like, it's like a, it's like an eight-year-old with a Pokemon card. Like you know everything about the thing that you like. Like where does that come from? Is that just how you were raised? Is that the dyslexia? Is that just your personality? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, so it's interesting. I I would say my my biggest motivator in anything I do is probably just learning. Like, well, without a doubt, which is kind of crazy for being dyslexic. I feel like most people are probably under the assumption that like, oh, he's dyslexic. He must have hated school and hated learning. But um, as long as the subject was one that I liked, I could usually get myself through those subjects I didn't like, and then I, the subjects I did love, I I really fully loved. Um, and so. And then also the ability that that you get nowadays with information being so readily available and really understanding the way that you learn. Like I'm I'm such an autodidact, which is someone who's who's good at self teaching um, or self learning. So I'm a very like uh, audio visual person where I need to have visuals to support the audio and vice versa. So I apologize. This is a podcast. <laughs> yeah, good thing I'm not trying to learn anything complicated <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, but. Uh, but yeah, so like learning stuff through YouTube is like how I learned so many things. Like um, learning is, is is the motivator for everything I, I do, even when it comes to work stuff. Like if we, um, like I, I, I would love to find some more complicated work for materials I've never tackled, not because I think it's a good business pursuit, but more just I just 
you know, feel like we're uh, pretty competent in making stuff out of aluminum. So we would love to do some titanium stuff. Um, well, but that, that that's really the motivator for everything. Um, whether it comes to like making something for my car, like right now I'm making this absolutely silly pie cut titanium exhaust that there's like three bends, three 90 degree bends right next to each other. And each 90 degree bend is made out of, um, what, 20, yeah, 20 parts uh, or 10 parts. So there's 30 parts right next to each other. They each need to be welded. So, you know, the total welding length is like dozens of feet <laughs> of welding and it's a ton of work and way more work than I should be putting into the project. But my whole motivator for that was just, I really wanted to learn how to weld titanium and uh, no better way to do it than just to do a hell, hell of a lot of it. Um, and that's on your 987 Cayman S. Yeah. Yeah. So a car that doesn't deserve this exhaust either, but uh, <laughs> I, I somehow convinced myself that it was financially more sound for me to consume a whole bunch of my time. And uh, at least the materials are cheaper than buying an off the shelf stainless exhaust. So I can kind of uh, convince myself into it that way. Yeah, but as long also, as you don't charge yourself the labor, you're, you're, yeah, you're in yeah, the yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm doing it after hours. So, um, but at the end of the day, I'll come out to it come out of it being like a pretty competent welder of titanium exhaust which uh is a skill i've always wanted to learn and and there's so many other projects that have been like that building my cage which you helped me with over a couple weekends was a big learning opportunity that was a lot of work yeah yeah and uh and a little bit of luck i think every time we bent up a, a tube we went back we might have had to adjust them a little bit but the fact that that thing fit in the car that will never not blow my mind yeah and it, it learning like you go into those and you're like ah like like i think i've done my my math i know how much tubing i need i know what these bends need to look like but actually doing it especially for the first time you know it's kind of that that difference how, can, how does the analogy go but there's a difference between knowing something and like understanding something yeah um and like i can know how to build a cage but actually to to deeply understand how to do it requires the ability to know so many subtle nuances of how to make it how to make sure those t tubes fit up perfectly because if they're not perfectly fit up then your weld one section and it will shrink or pull and then the whole thing's warped and and off and there, there's so many subtle nuances so you can you can really learn something but to actually know it you you really have to do it um but I, I love that process and actually, yeah, I think that's why you like doing things with you and you encouraging me to just act on things helps me learn because I get overwhelmed. Even with like, let's say the podcast, for example, it took me a long time to research and decide what microphones, what recording device, how am I going to do this? Where am I going to do this? All this stuff. And it's like, you can just get so caught up. And if you're a gearhead like me, where like, you know, I'm always looking at cameras. I just want the latest and greatest, but I can't afford it. So you have to be very, very cautious about what you buy and when you buy and how you buy. Eventually you get to a point where you're just stalled because you're like, well, I could stare at this a7 III all day and then compare it against the Canon EOS R, but I know that they're going to come out with new stuff. And then you end up not doing anything and you never learn. Whereas like, you're just like, just get the thing that you think is reasonable. It'll be enough. And you'll learn whether or not that worked or not. But I want to get into Renscott a little bit because I don't know if people really a even know what Renscott is. Um, and B, what do you want it to be? So tell us what the, the business is. Yeah, yeah. So Renscott, Renscott started out originally as just a way for me to get parts cheap, really. You know, every every car guy's dream. Classic. Um, 
So I, I was actually going up um, while I was still in college, going up to visit some friends at UVM. Um, and while I was up there, I realized that Renline was right nearby. Renline's a big, um, probably the biggest Porsche aftermarket parts yeah, manufacturer. Yeah, I, I have a lot of Renline stuff on my 911. Yeah, yeah, we're both both guilty of that. <laughs> Heavily Renline outfit. Yeah, um, and uh, so... So I think I was still staying up there through the Monday and then heading back down to Massachusetts. So I uh, I gave them a call and asked them if I could come by to buy some stuff. And they were like, we don't usually have people come by to buy stuff. Yeah, in the but, middle uh, of nowhere. But sure, yeah. Yeah, we're in the, like, yeah, Vermont. Not 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 Porsche Centro, Central or, or anything like that. Not Southern California like we would all probably assume. Right. Um, so I went up there and... I got a tour by their vice president, who I was I was kind of shocked to be talking to him, um, and uh, went around and walked around there for a couple hours, ate some uh, great old pizza in the fridge that was perfect, and uh, bought a couple parts from them. But while I was there, I talked to them, and you know, I did the thing that we've probably all done when we thought we were probably bigger fish in the sea than we were, and asked them if they sponsored builds or uh, sure did did discounts or stuff. Which now being in the industry, I realize how. Uh, kind of annoying that is oh um, yeah oh i've got i've got a thousand followers could you just like give me 10 grand worth of parts yeah and yeah. at this point i was like i had no followers i was just like i'll put your sticker on my car <laughs> yeah yeah and not realizing that that has to equate to you know value for them that matches the amount of money they they just gave off but they're very um courteous and the guy was like we don't really do that but we can set you up with a wholesale account if you want to become a dealer for us and i was like what do I have to do to do that? Because I had always been thinking through college, like, oh, I really want to start a business. but And I had a bunch of ideas, but it was just which one was the right one. And I didn't know, you know, what to actually do. So I was like, this guy's telling me to start a business. Sounds like this is the idea. Classic David. Yeah. So Needed I, one little baby push over the edge and boom, LLC. Done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> literally probably by the next week, um, uh, almost, yeah, just now, like three years ago, as of May, um, I started the LLC called Renscott. Um and you know I I had this wholesale account didn't really know how how it worked or anything or how being a aftermarket parts dealer worked but I knew I could order parts for myself and get a discount so that was nice. And uh but I would you know kind of troll the Facebook groups, go on the forums, um if someone was asking about what sway bar they would get, I would comment and you know, say, if you need help getting this, let me know. And, uh, you know, I, I actually got like quite a few sales that way. And, uh, it was pretty amazing that, that I was able to put that together and, uh, and, and see that there was actually a potential for, for this to actually be more than just, uh, uh, side hobby or anything like that. Yeah. It's like the, it's like the, it's like the real life equivalent of when a YouTuber has an affiliate link. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, exactly. Oh, I get 50 bucks every time you buy a course exhaust using coupon code Tedward. Yep. Yep, exactly, exactly. And, and there's always things about like, oh, you can't discount stuff, so you offer free shipping or stuff like that. Right. But, uh, but yeah, there's there's plenty of ways to kind of sweeten the deal. To try I'm, glad, get... I'm glad you did that instead of like entering some pyramid scheme yeah. where they're like, oh yeah, just buy this inventory and sell it and then get five of your friends. Yeah, you yeah, know, me you, too. <laughs> you, definitely, you definitely weren't stupid. You didn't get involved in anything dangerous and you got involved with like good people. The Ren, yeah. the, the Renline guys are awesome. Yeah, yeah, they are, they are amazing and it was perfect because it was drop, drop shipping so I had no inventory tied up. So uh it was perfect. I only made money when I sold stuff, and otherwise, I was still just broke. So right, and then and then that's when 
you decided I would like to make stuff myself, right? Yeah, yeah. So at the at this time, I was a um, sophomore in college, and I was studying mechanical engineering with a minor in manufacturing. So I I knew my focus was going to be um, manufacturing based. Um, so the school year after that, in the um, spring term, I did an internship at Rolls Royce Manufacturing at not the automaker Rolls-Royce, but at uh, Rolls-Royce Engineering Company. Um, For like jet engines. Yeah, yeah. So they do jet engines, but I worked on the naval side. So we made propellers and big, big propellers, uh, like 65,000 pound, like 16 foot in diameter propellers for U.S. Navy destroyers. Um, So the scale of manufacturing was absurd people are starting to get the idea probably by now that you are like that four-year-old that if he sees construction like mm-hmm. the family car needs to stop and we need to watch this oh, for yeah. 20 minutes yeah okay oh yeah except you're like in your 20s and that's still your life yeah, yeah. no no, no. <laughs> I, I can uh, i can share a great picture with you of me when i was three like wearing a builder's hat classic and carrying a little wooden toolbox yeah um but yeah, so so this this opportunity to spend three or four months in a, a full scale manufacturing facility of like crazy scale of manufacturing um, was was really just an amazing experience to to see what it was like in the real world outside of school, um, and and that that experience really defined for me that the manufacturing was where I wanted to end up um, outside of college, whether it was me pursuing my own dream or or doing something entrepreneurial or whether it was working for someone. I knew I knew being a manufacturing engineer um, was was going to be was going to be my focus. Um, so that following summer, I was I was really interested in spending more time making stuff and working with CNC machines. I got some experience with it at school, but you know, an hour a day, twice a week, really was not. I've filling been my there. Need. Yeah, like I, like I've, I've, I used to be the shop monitor at mm-hmm. WPI. I took the CNC classes, and I'll tell you, like, I wasn't good at it. I could make the thing. Like, if you, if you gave me the assignment, I could eventually make it. But yeah. It doesn't mean I did it the first time. It doesn't mean I actually understand what I'm doing. I'm just following the steps. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and you, you're probably still, you know, getting into the phase where safety was becoming a much bigger thing in schools but by the time i reached college you know there there were no shop hours after hours there was no access no to especially it in boston projects around the time that i was in school it was probably around like 2008 or 9 i remember there was a girl at mit working on a lathe and her hair got caught in the lathe and she mm-hmm. and she died she was killed by the machine um, yeah. it was a very preventable mistake and whether or not there was somebody in the shop as a monitor like maybe that would have saved her maybe not but you know these are really dangerous machines. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's very true. Um, but but it seems like so much of now now the it's just became so complicated for schools to allow students to have just free reign of these um, or or access to these machines after hours that now there's really no ability to use them for personal projects or extracurricular stuff, which is kind of crazy. Like that's where you really learn, or if someone's really passionate about it, like anybody like me would love to spend some extra hours in there in the evening making some widget or doodad and learning more about doing it but so naturally um, you're not allowed to use their equipment so what do you go out and do david yeah so i you know i did some some browsing of little hobbyist machines there's if if you know manufacturing or um or manufacturing youtube space you probably heard of tormach which are these fairly small kind of desktop CNC machines. So I was looking at one of those and, and really thinking that way. And then, and then 
I was uh, following this Instagram account of this this guy, Jay Pearson, who makes work holding products. Um, and he actually has a very similar story to me. Like, um, went into college, he actually ended up dropping out of college, bought his first mill in while he was in college, used, and uh, started making parts, and uh, now has a very, very uh, real uh, uh, manufacturing work holding company. And, you know, has, you know, probably six or eight employees and 10 machines. So, um so it was it was interesting to kind of hear like oh this guy who's gone through the same process I've gone through is now selling this used machine, and uh, it was definitely a stretch, but it was one of those opportunities of like okay maybe maybe I'm not just going to take a baby step here maybe I'm just going to jump full into this and shocking, shocking see where dude. it goes shocking and, that you jump full in <laughs> yeah yeah so so then I went from being like oh maybe I'll do this in a garage at my parents house in new hampshire to um maybe maybe i'll try and find a shop space and rent it out and uh actually uh actually make some parts instead of just uh mess around with it and i had actually already owned one kind of clapped out 80s cnc mill that used floppy disks and stuff and uh kind of got it running but uh i i was definitely wanting something that was modern and took modern day programs there was also very little in the way of safety on that old yeah, mill. Yeah, that, that was a scary device yeah yeah that thing was clapped out like <laughs> i will say i'm glad that you took the leap just from a safety standpoint because i mean yeah. it, it, it it's like the equivalent of daily driving like an mgb versus a tesla like you're probably gonna die in the mg yeah yeah completely um so so i found this machine and i talked to him and made it work and uh and put put a deal together and and uh, i actually went out and saw it while i was meeting meeting some friends out in california so I, I saw the machine and everything and then i think there was maybe six six or eight weeks between when i committed to the machine and bought it to when it actually arrived and at that point i didn't have anywhere to put it um i didn't know how to turn it on i didn't know how to put a tool in it um this was uh, it was a haas mill so it was quite a bit more advanced than the machines that we were using at school even. Um, so then I started watching a ton of YouTube videos and Pres- absolutely binging. <laughs> Pressure's on. So wait, where did it go? Where was it delivered originally? Now, I uh, Between that time, I found the shop that we, oh. we ended up being in. in so Cambridge. it was in transit and you were like, um, oh, yeah. I'll give yeah, you an no, address. No, no. It, was, a- it was, well, so the, the guy who I bought it from, he was moving shops as well. So he said it could stay at his shop for like three or four weeks. And the day that... The riggers were coming to move all of his machines in the new shop was a day that it had to leave and come to me so there was like four weeks there and then it took a couple weeks for it to come out um to me so and that's where we got old ren scott the first building yeah yeah so so i was i i hadn't it is so hard to find small rentable commercial shop space or anything like that so i think i ended up finding the place i went to on craigslist and that's like the go-to place i found all my every car i've ever bought i found on craigslist yeah 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 so i guess commercial real estate too hey what the hell yeah yeah if you're looking for like a small shop space like craigslist was the place um there's not like there's kind of a zillow equivalent for commercial but it's more for like big commercial like twenty thousand square foot buildings not for a two thousand square foot bay in a in an industrial complex or anything like that um, and then I think we maybe found that with like a week and a half or two weeks to go until the machine was showing up. So had all my friends help paint the walls, uh, put some Home Depot epoxy on the floor, um, 
got airlines in, got a compressor that was definitely undersized for the machine. Oh, God, that thing was always running. Yeah, yeah, that thing, that thing's had a hard life. Um, and, uh, and yeah, basically had everything together. And then, and then one day the machine showed up and uh, put it in the corner and uh, yeah, tried to figure out how to turn it on and put a tool in it. And honestly, it, it was like two or three weeks before I figured out how to set a work coordinate system. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's like a big, it, it's intimidating. I mean, you're getting this thing and you're supposed to just be like, oh, and oh, here we go. I have a business now. But it's yeah. like, wait, I need to actually use it. Yeah, and there's there's so many buttons. <laughs> there are. So many buttons, so many menus. But uh, It was a Haas Mini Mill, right? Yeah, 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 Haas Super Mini Mill 2 from 2014. Um, and uh, yeah, but eventually, you know, through YouTube videos and asking teachers that, at school and and uh whatnot i i figured it out and broke a bunch of tools and uh actually started making some parts and getting some chips flying which was so scary but at the same time like so exhilarating and uh well, so as, so exciting as a friend i hated i hated the idea of you alone in a shop with that tool with that yeah. machine yeah. like that was frightening i'm like oh my god every time i was there and you were like okay uh, i'm like i'm gonna head out and you're like yeah i'm gonna stay late i'd be like oh god yeah and uh and I, I guess we should also preface this by saying that the school that I went to, because of the co-op program, I had a summer term. So I was in classes during this as well, um, trying to juggle delivery of a machine and building out a shop while also still doing classes and trying to figure out what I was actually going to make on this machine. Didn't really have that figured out yet. Kind of yeah, just bought a the, machine. Yeah, you bought a machine without a without like a plan. You like it wasn't like, hey, I've got this thing, proof of concept. I've got these guys manufacturing it. And, uh, oh, by the way, you know what? Maybe if I just made these myself or if I could rapid prototype, I could do this a lot cheaper. And fa- No, you were just like, I want to make things, which is like... Well, I wanted to learn how to use a machine. Yeah, that's fair. And that, that, that's, that's still always a motivator. And, um, and at least, you know, it's starting to look promising that following that as your guiding, uh, guiding light is actually a way to form a somewhat real business so I, I don't hate it i mean look i'm <laughs> i'm kind of that guy too like if somebody if somebody handed my you know my dad just handed me a camera i always wanted to take photos and stuff but like i was handed cameras when i was a kid and yeah. i just wanted to take pictures i wanted to, and then it became a video thing but it was never like i wasn't like renting cameras and i wasn't like figuring out how to do that it was just like no give me a camera i'll figure it out i'll make yeah. it happen yeah uh, and, and really you know there's two ways that a business functions right you either make a product or you offer a service and when it comes to offering a service, you kind of got to figure out a way to differentiate yourselves from from your competition or who's around you. So that was really kind of kind of what those first several months were about was figuring out like what our niche was, what we were going to be good at and what our customer base was going to be like. Um, and I think I think based on what we were able to produce in the early days, that's really what led us to finding more customers on the contract manufacturing side. Um, I think with us having those unique skills of, oh, wow, you make like one off or small run automotive parts, like nobody does that, um, is really what has led us to, to actually have a business based on this idea of, oh, like just having a skill or just learning how to use a machine. So uh, let's go backwards a little bit because the, I mean, what, if anyone knows Scott, they know you probably from remote reservoir mounts or those harness collars, but there was a product before those and it had nothing to do with that mini mill. And I remember that's what you really wanted to make. 
Yeah, yeah. So there was there was this idea to try and make um, forged mirror caps for Lamborghini Huracan Performantes. It's a forged carbon, right? Yeah, like yeah. A- forged carbon mirror caps, um, which which was based off the idea of uh, everything on this car. You know, it's the most premium version of the Huracan. Um, every carbon part on it is forged carbon, but for some reason. On the performantes, the mirrors were only in black. I thought this was genius. I yeah. not, not necessarily that like you would make this. I, I thought that was going to be very complicated and expensive, and I didn't know how you were going to do it. But that's your thing. You're good at figuring things out. But the fact that you looked up and down at this car, I think we, uh, me and you, had gone down at Pittsburgh, right? That's when we yep. had seen Doctor M3's uh, purple Monte. And I walked away having driven it and looked at it and I just, I fell in love with it. And I think the only thing you had to say was, how come the mirror caps aren't car- forged carbon? Yeah. Well, like why aren't, why aren't they at least body color? But, um, but yeah, so I kind of noticed this niche in the market and I'd actually heard like a couple months previously, a friend who knew a guy who was making stuff out of forged carbon, who was local to us. And, and he wasn't even just doing it the like hacky way. He was doing it the actual way of making two molds and pressing the parts together um, doing it similar to like an injection molded part um, and I saw some of the material and I compared it to actual forged carbon Lamborghini parts and it was it was very very much so the same um, the same look aesthetically and so I I bought a couple of Lamborghini a set of Lamborghini mirrors off of uh, eBay and we we went through the process of um, laser scanning them and designing the product, which all of that was outsourced, which is crazy because nowadays we could do that in-house. Yeah, you're like the laser scan king. Yeah, yeah. It's like a big portion of our business now. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy because we outsource this and now looking back at it, we, we kind of got uh, screwed pricing-wise. But uh, anyhow. That's um, kind of funny. And, but the, there but were you all learned these... that that was even a service. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I had kind of heard of laser scanning, but I don't even remember how I ended up finding the guys who we ended up using. I might have just Googled them and ended up finding finding the, the company that, that scanned these mirrors for us and, uh, and, and created the models that we used for reference for these mirror caps. Um, and then the manufacturer that I was using for those, they did all the design work, but they took forever and uh, really struggled on it. And actually now I think in hindsight, uh, well, nowadays, if we were doing the same project, we could, we could do all the design work in house. Um, but, uh, yeah, to, to kind of jump to the end of that story ended up being that the manufacturer took, I think the initial contract was set for like 10 weeks till delivery for when the contract was signed. And uh, about 10 months later, uh, no parts had been made and the tooling hadn't even been made. And it turned out the manufacturer that was supposed to make the tooling to make the parts uh, had gone out of business. So it was it was a big shambles. So, uh, um, and by that time, a bunch of other companies, 10, 1066 or yeah, whatever, whatever the big Lamborghini carbon fiber manufacturing company is now had came out with theirs and a couple other companies had as well so yeah, it was no longer like this niche product that like oh if you come to run scott you'll get these things yeah, hey yeah, lamborghini no, owners no and and a whole basis of it was trying to be the first to market um but even though that that first business plan didn't end up working it was a great experience to kind of learn what this process is actually like and uh learn what putting a contract in place is and finding a manufacturer and designing a part um and trying to figure out how to sell something and projecting sales volumes and figuring out what the MSRP should be on the part and how much the part's going to cost and figuring out margins and yeah, even overhead though it, costs. Even and, though like you, you could say, oh, the, the part objectively failed, 
you literally learned how to run a business. Yeah, yeah, from I that learned, part. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so back back to everything. You know, it was all. If the actual plan doesn't end up working, at least you can come out of most things learning a ton, and that that definitely was the foundation of learning of entrepreneurship. Um, the the Ren Scott was based off of. Well, and that's what I like about what you're doing here too, is because the word entrepreneurship gets thrown around a lot now and every, every other Instagram page is model slash entrepreneur. It's like, no, no, you are a freelancer. Um, and you, you know, like these are people who are just getting paid to do a thing, but you know, you are the only like actual entrepreneur that I, that I know. I mean, maybe that's not true, but you're the only person that I can look at and be like, I have a, I would give you that title and I wouldn't, I wouldn't like let anyone make fun of that. Cause I know a lot of people yeah. will say like, Oh, I'm an entrepreneur. Like for me, you know, I do YouTube. I do this thing. I could say I'm an entrepreneur, but like, I'm not, I, I mean, yeah, I have business cases for what I'm doing. And on a very, very like basic scale. Sure. You could say that, but for the most part, I provide a service. I create a product, whether that's video, photo, whatever. And I sell it to a client. Or yeah. I'm selling it for ad space on YouTube or for sponsors. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please let me know. Um, but, you know, all of those are learning experiences too. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and there's definitely facets of what you do. You know, selling stickers, that's pretty entrepreneurial. Yeah. But uh, creating content for someone else would definitely probably fall under the freelance category. So, you know, there's there's bits bits of entrepreneurship there. So after that fails, what's next? Because you your brain is like insane. I don't, it's funny because... I would love to be able to say you're one of those people who never sleeps, but you're like a cat. You actually sleep a lot. It's just that you upset when you're awake, you're nonstop insane. And when you do sleep, you are a rock. Um, and I can attest to that because I have done many road trips with you and mm -hmm. I have had to try to get you out of bed. Yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah. Difficult I, uh, task. Yeah. I, I would definitely, uh, and especially in that first summer, there were definitely quite a lot of late nights, but I make up the sleep. <laughs> sleep is definitely <laughs> one of those priorities for me. Um, and, uh, I function probably 10 times better with plenty of sleep than not. So it's probably a good decision anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so then I went through that summer of being in school plus starting a business plus learning how to use a machine and figuring out what I was actually going to make on it. Yeah. There's nothing um, like paying rent on a, a pretty massive for what, for what we were doing, what you were doing. It was a pretty massive space. Yeah. Yeah. Couple, couple thousand square feet, which, which quickly became full once we fit a car lift into it and a car and and a couple of machines um but it was definitely definitely a big undertaking and uh especially it's just a one-man band i i quickly realized that that wasn't going to be the long term for me to just be by myself um and then i that summer the idea of well so i had another co-op coming up in the in the fall so i i was looking for co-op opportunities but really being like uh really really what i want to do during this time is focus completely on my business instead of trying to take on a co-op while um working working on on ren scott so i ended up talking with my school and pitching the idea of an entrepreneurship co-op um and and i took it really seriously and wrote a strong proposal for it and laid out the, the groundwork of how it would work with a mentor um, and a uh, and and someone to, to overlook me and to report back to and they they went for it so I ended up spending that fall doing an entrepreneurship co-op being the first entrepreneurship co-op to ever happen and now now there's a running entrepreneurship program at the school there's there's two entrepreneurship programs per year that's and amazing so for your co-op you ran your own business yeah yeah so I, I did an entrepreneurship co-op worked worked 
worked on the business and uh, reported back to a, uh, a business professor about the business side of things and then had another mentor who I talked to about the manufacturing side and and uh, the processes and, and project design and stuff like that. And again, you're, the two products that you end up coming up with in that time are very similar to the same idea where you looked at a what most people see as a supercar and go, wow, a Huracan Performante, it's the pinnacle of the Huracan. Mm-hmm. Instead of looking at it and saying, oh, that's perfect, you go, oh, it needs mirror caps that match the thing. And you're like, okay, Rain Man. Well, instead, you do the exact same thing and you look at your Cayman and you go, these zip ties are stupid. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I, you know, I spent, I spent, you know, from when we got, or from when, from when Ren Scott started doing manufacturing or when, when, when I knew that machine was showing up, I just spent the next six months with my eyes wide open to see you. What, what were possible product ideas? Because I knew, I knew that would be a great foundation to fill times between taking on work for other companies um, and a great opportunity to learn to go through the full cycle from idea to design to prototype to product development to then actually making a product and actually having it ready to sale. Um, and uh, so, so basically the idea of, of where are places where zip ties are used where uh, an actual purpose-built mount would be much better. Um, so the two things that came up were a mount to mount the remote reservoirs for coilover suspension. I thought it was crazy that people were spending eight grand on suspension and then mounting their reservoirs with, you know, two cent zip ties. And, and totally acceptable. Yeah, and uh, and that was the hood, Everyone's like, look at my, si- I just spent, it's like seven grand on this remote reservoir setup. It's yep. adjustable right here. And they're literally held in by zip ties. Yeah, it's, it's you know, kind of crazy. You use top hats that cost 600 bucks a pair and, and, then, uh, and then hold the reservoirs on with zip ties. And I feel like so many people have probably bought coilovers and then ended up with the stage where it's like, okay, it's installed. What do I do with this canister thing? Like, just zip tying on seems so hacky. Yeah. Um, so the idea for a mount for those came up and uh, it, it took a while to really figure out what it was even going to look like. There's, there's versions of it and prototypes that we still have that look so different than what it is now. Um, and, and one of the big tools that we leverage a lot is trying to find a partner to develop products with. So usually that's a shop that specializes in whatever make it is or, or the product and really get their feedback because they've they they have you know years and years of experience mounting these so um we worked with a shop called catch motor company kmc that's um right near us in lawrence mass yeah our good friend tim hopefully i'm hoping tim will come on the podcast because i have a lot of questions for him actually oh yeah 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 you might have a couple podcasts there yeah he has he has too much knowledge of like porsche stuff but anyway i'm sorry yeah yeah so so uh tim tim was someone i had a pretty good relationship with in the porsche sphere so I asked him about this product idea, and he was like, "Yeah, actually, that would be great. Like, we spend probably, you know, four or six six hours, you know, making a custom set of mounts and bending sheet metal parts and painting them and, and uh, putting riv nuts in. And it would be so nice to just take a part off the shelf, make the same margin on it, and uh, have it easy to mount." Um, so he was all about the idea and thought it had great market potential as well. But he also had the knowledge of really. Um, knowing the direction we should go in with design and making sure that it's aesthetically pleasing, but also uh, performs just how it should be and making sure there's no performance uh, uh, attributes that we're overlooking. Yeah. So yeah, so he was he was really like a, a great resource and, and looking at the early designs, although they were, uh, they were so bad. Um, 
but well you were you were green as fuck yeah yeah yeah. i had no clue what i was doing um i had access to cad and uh no knowledge of how to use it yeah i mean like the biggest the biggest thing that you could have gotten at the time was just to be like yeah i've got a license for solidworks yeah Mm. yeah well actually we found fusion 360 which is like the go-to cad software no shit if you want something well it's free for hobbyists free for entrepreneurs um so if anybody out there wants to design stuff from design parts for their car, that's the uh, that's definitely the way. Yeah, to the do price it. of the price of entry is really high. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it used to be extremely high, and honestly, we we hit the mark on when to enter this kind of manufacturing sphere. Like, um, if we, if we were five years earlier, we would have had to have bought or most likely torn a version of SolidWorks, which if you buy it's Fifteen grand for the bare bones setup, and then probably a couple grand a year to maintain it. Um, but Fusion is free for entrepreneurs, free for hobbyists, and once you pay for it, it's like four hundred fifty dollars per year for a seat. Um, so the barrier of entry came down a whole bunch, um, and it's really, really good software. We still use it for everything today. Um, so yeah, so so that product took us took us a couple months to go through the stages of developing it. And and sitting on uh, coming to a final design, we ended up making it so it used a, a 3D printed adapter, so we could design it for different makes and models of of coilover. Because some are hexagon, some are octagon, some are round. They're all different diameters. So the 3D printed adapter was really really um, a great way of of making the parts. So we didn't have to machine 20 different variants. But if someone wants a new variant, was they they check out pick the custom option send us an email or put in a note what what they want or what what the uh the size of it is and usually we 3d print it overnight and still ship it out the next day even with it having a custom adapter. that's insane and, and this is all uh, with the ability to use your like laser scan arm on a yeah on anything yeah yeah so so yes yeah, so we use the laser scan arm for a lot of stuff and then a lot of times we just ask the uh ask the uh customer to use a piece of string to measure the diameter if it's round or or uh we try and get our hands on one to measure with a caliper or something like that sure um but yeah it's been it's been really good so now we have um the the variants for pretty much all uh remote reservoirs uh nowadays and then we built it in a way so uh we were able to add a cage mount to it as well so you could mount your remote reservoir mount to to a cage which has been super popular and then same thing there if someone wants to mount it some to some obscure cage size or some uh strut brace or something like that they can tell us what the diameter is and yeah. we'll 3d print it overnight and and get out to them the next day um so that's been a, a really great project and was a great learning opportunity and and it's really amazing to look back and see how much that product Progressed. So what about um how's the pandemic impacted the business? Yeah, so it's it's interesting cuz I feel like everyone probably went into it being like oh boy, we're going into a recession, like everyone's going to stop spending. Um turns out it's it's you know, it's kind of been true, but at the same time our best month was was March. Um and we we were on a pretty strong growth curve. Um at the beginning of this year so that definitely carried into march but we really didn't see a big um a big decline in business due during during the pandemic or or during the first couple months of it we we maybe saw a slowdown in growth like we weren't seeing the same growth month over month that we'd previously been seeing but we've been holding pretty steady with 
with the kind of sales that we were seeing in uh, in March. So um, overall, it, it really hasn't been that bad. And it's allowed us to invest a lot within our business and within our systems and uh, and really implementing um, in, in implementing some key um some key systems and uh and resources within the business so it's actually been really good <laughs> what like keeps you up at night i mean not necessarily financially but like what are the things that you're like oh man like we're not necessarily late or like something that you want that is like a stretch target like i mean you don't have to divulge like private you know proprietary things but what do you want for the business that like you like you worry about yeah, honestly, not much. <laughs> I'm, I'm like really, really not a big warrior. Um, like I'll, I'll just take stuff day by day. But pretty much, if a problem comes up, I know we're either gonna get go around it or go through it and and figure it out at the end of the day. So I'm, a, I'm really not a big warrior. And so far, we've done a really good job of, you know, I feel like most businesses um, that make their own product, their big thing is like running out of inventory or or something like that that can cause a whole bunch of stress. Um, but we do we do a really good job of tracking our inventory and keeping on top of that. So that's really not a big side of it. Um, uh, honestly, I, I really wouldn't say I ever, or at least as of recently, I haven't been kept up much, but really I've been like excited more in the morning to, to tackle some really big kind of business development projects that we've been working on and trying to pick up some much larger customers and some, some really big name um customers for for manufacturing and design work. that's exciting yeah so so honestly i you know it, it was it was pretty stressful in the beginning of the pandemic actually um but that was more less the stress of what was going on and more just like the unknown of what the future was going to look like and you know i think all business owners went into that being like i i have no clue what the right move is here like should everyone go home should should i send a few people home like uh, I think most most business owners just were had no clue what to even do or make of the situation because it was obviously new for everyone, but it was obviously gonna gonna have a big effect um, in some way. So that that was probably a, a stressful time. But yeah, overall, so recently it's it's really not been overly stressful. It's just exciting to to work through the projects where we have in the pipeline. Well, instead of instead of just talking about the business, you have a couple cars that I think a lot of people would be excited about. Um, let's if things don't keep you up at night then i guess uh it's pretty easy to buy a mclaren right yeah yeah so uh so yeah i ended up buying a uh, 600 lt uh, over a year ago now which is uh which is kind of crazy um and yeah now has almost 4000 miles on it so i'm uh, happy to actually be a driver of it <laughs> yeah, i mean you definitely do drive it i see it out i mean Hell, I've driven it up in New Hampshire and Vermont and shit, and it's yeah. fantastic. It's a fun car. And what? All right, walk me through the buying because I remember when you were looking at these cars, you were like, there was a point where you were like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm buying a, a friggin' supercar, and I w- would have put all my money on the fact that you were gonna buy a GT3 RS a 991.2, or was it a uh, dot one at the time? I think it was a dot one. I think that one yeah. was a dot one. And then you called me and you said, I did something else. And you bought 600 LT. And I thought, I mean, frankly, I was like, oh, no, bad idea. Because I'm thinking like, A, depreciation, B, reliability, C, what about Porsche, David? Yeah, yeah. Well, so so 
on the same day, I ended up going down to a dealership in Rhode Island to look at a GT3 RS at a Porsche dealership, Porsche Fairfield, and went down. Isn't that Connecticut? Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fairfield, yeah, yeah, yeah Connecticut, that's Connecticut. Connecticut. Okay. Um, so went down there, test drove it, uh, and I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I'd actually driven a couple before, um, so it wasn't a brand new experience to me. Um, and then after that, I went to McLaren or Greenwich um, to Miller Motor Cars, and I'd already been talking with them quite a bit, quite quite extensively via email, um, seeing what they had in. Because at that point, that was a brand new car. Only only a handful of them had really um, been delivered to the New England area already. Um, so I was kind of interested to see what cars they might already have on the way and see if any were were of the spec that that I was looking for. And it turned out they actually already had one that was in that they were using as their kind of showroom car. So it had been used for like some customer test drives and had some miles on it. Um, But like by miles, like 600. 600 miles, Um, yeah. And, uh, but it was in like the the perfect spec. Um, Chicane gray, which has an orange flake in it. Um, Some, or, oh my, yeah, 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 there's like, you could have you could a reduce orange flake. you could reduce the weight of this car by 10 pounds just by not including the orange flake yeah, it's yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs> there's so much flake on that paint um orange brake calipers orange stitching an orange seat belt so it really yeah it, it really was a great looking spec um and so so i was happy with that and that's obviously kind of the first thing to get your foot into the door and looking looking at a car is whether aesthetically it fits checks the boxes and option wise it did as well so i ended up going down there really with thinking that the gt3 s was going to be the one that i would end up going for you know uh, i knew the lt was going to be a uh a step up from the gt3 s but no, I it's, didn't... A, it's like a hundred grand more at the time too yeah yeah it was it was yeah. not it was not in the same ballpark you wouldn't yeah you, yeah you would maybe cross shop them somewhat based on performance or like a lap time yeah. but not really no, yeah they really aren't competitors yeah but yeah i also feel like the gt3s is too cheap same with gt3s but that's that's porsche's decision too um, cheap as far as like actual asking price yeah yeah well they they all punch way above their cost i agree um, yeah like a gt3 is like you know competitive with a 570s that's gt3 rs price but i mean on the other hand you've got to look at like the fact that a a gt3 is like you drive a gt3 around town it's not a sense of occasion yeah it it wears off really quickly because it's a 911 and it drives like a 911 and now that like 991.2s are basically like volkswagen gti's at normal speeds they they drive i mean literally if you've driven a mark 7 golf or GTI, you know what it's like to drive a 991.2 at low speeds. You really do. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like a uh, 991.2 GC3 RS was pretty much worth what it, they actually were charging, which was like 240 grand for yeah, a good those, spec. Yeah, that was a big step up from the dot one. But, uh, but even then, like, you know, 280 grand competitive to 600 LT wouldn't be that out of place especially saying the next step in the gt lineup is gt2 rs this 400 grand different world um so <laughs> there's literally nothing between 250,000 400 grand um which is kind of nuts you can buy a gt3 rs and a gt3 for the same price as a gt2 rs so i just feel like there's kind of a hole in the market there and and they could they could uh 
separate the, the gap between the GT3 and the GT3S a bit more. Well, I think um, I didn't get, I didn't, I didn't understand the 600 LT until I saw it and until I drove it. And then I was like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that be said, the, the kind of thought process behind it was, you know, I, I already owned a Porsche and really enjoyed it and really understood what that brand stands for and means. Um, and McLaren really seemed like the next logical step up from that. Um, either or the next logical step was either into a GT Porsche or one above that would be uh, a McLaren specifically an LT variant. Um, uh, there, there were really no other brands in the class that really interest me or follow the same, um, the same kind of thought process that I would want out of a automaker, you know, Ferrari and what they stand for really isn't what I care about when it comes to a car, you know, um, I, I bought the LT based on its driving ability and yeah, its driving feel. I agree. I think, I think obviously McLaren has a lot of folks talking about resale values, talking about the health of the business. Um, you know, I know they've been struggling through the pandemic. That's for sure. Like that, that, that McLaren is one of the few automakers that I'm like, Ooh, like what's going to end up bailing them out? whether it's a buyer, whether it's an investor, whether it's like a sudden success of a new variant, like I don't know what McLaren, what has, what's to come for McLaren. Aston Martin had someone swoop in, right? And there's money on the table now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think McLaren, um, I think uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they end up with investors swooping in to, to help them out, but they've also during their most recent earnings call or report, they, they gave some pretty promising information on how they were going to restructure the business and in, in not completely, but in smaller ways. Um, mostly they're letting go of like 1200 employees, which is going to help them, uh, have, have quite a bit less overhead, but hopefully they also those weren't all the paint guys. Yeah, I know. I know. Hope not. <laughs> You're gonna have I'm a sure. Primer. I'm sure MSO was well protected as <laughs> probably a cash cow for them. Everyone gets primer. Yeah, I know. Right. Um, but, uh, but they also announced that they are thinking about dropping their production numbers. And they even stated that, that part of the reasoning for that was for their customers' investment in, in the cars. So That's kind of wild to see that written. Yeah, I've never yeah. seen and, anything like that. And especially something like that, you know, you know when they put that out, that was a very well edited and written written documents so yeah and it's like it's, you know it wasn't it's a mistake legitimate corporate acknowledgement that like oh my god we keep undercutting our customers every time we come up with a variant yeah yeah and and i understand why they were doing what they were doing like i'm sure they were just hoping that they were going to end up in a ferrari situation where they were going to end up with more demand than than they were producing but it just never happened and it's kind of funny because it's a bit of a catch-22 where them producing more cars kept more people from buying them because of the scare of depreciation yeah when really they just need more people to come over so um i think we'll see post 765 lt uh hopefully a bit of a change in mclaren in them um really having quite a bit more loyalty towards their their existing customers and and just producing less volumes so there's more demand like that's the basis of any company that makes luxury good is either you have to produce less than than the demand is and that's how you're able to keep prices up or you're just going to have so much interest in the product that you can charge whatever you want and people just pay for it which is kind of the lucky position the ferrari's in but only really ferrari um the other option would be to go the aston martin or um lamborghini route where you end up producing an suv or something that's a cash cow that's in volume that people are buying with the knowledge that it's going to depreciate but 
people just aren't really caring or you know nobody buys an suv even if it is a three hundred thousand dollar one and we've still yet to see if that's going to work out for aston martin yeah yeah we've yet to see but at least at least the initial information about that car looks really good and and pretty promising it does it's funny because a lot you know i've posted i did i did a special thing walk around thing with the dbx with a pre-production car and you get the comment section on the youtube and they're just oh it's a ford focus oh it's just like this why would anyone spend this money blah 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 and i'm like well the people who are buying them don't necessarily care what you think they care about the quality product and it's like if you're if you're a loyal uh, an aston martin loyalist then having a dbx is going to be a really intriguing prospect for you yeah yeah it, it completely is and um Lamborghini has really been the one to prove that this model, even though as purists and enthusiasts kind of hate it, it it's great for us. Holy crap! Um, did the Urus work? The yeah, Urus like, is. I think they've produced they've produced like seven thousand of them or something last year, um, and I think in like twenty fifteen they produced like five thousand cars total. So like you know now Lamborghini has money, they they have the money to put it into their development of their sports car. The the Urus was basically just a Volkswagen, Audi, Porsche, whatever. Well, if anything, it probably fag group car you want to. It probably helped SQ8 sales because if you, I mean, Urus is not a cheap car. That's like it's it's a way above an SQ8. You go get an SQ8 and you're like, look, I basically drive a a, an actually good looking Urus. Yeah. No offense, Urus. It's just extreme. It's a little sharp and ridiculous. Yeah. And. And the Urus has a proven platform, so you know you aren't actually buying a Lamborghini in quality or reliability. That being said, well, pretty much all Lamborghinis, other than Aventadors, are basically just Audis nowadays. So yep, they're uh, they're they're pretty reliable all around. But you know that that business model really makes a lot of sense. You mass produce the one car that you can get away with mass producing and selling for a hefty profit, and you put that money into to keeping afloat the purest and the the real enthusiasts and, and the real reason why people are even buying your SUV, which obviously is the sports cars or supercars. So, and we can all thank Porsche for paving the way with the Cayenne. Uh, yes. All hail the Cayenne. Yep. Yep. And now the Macan. Yeah. Which all of us secretly like. I thought the Macan, when the Macan came out, and I'm not going to dive too deep in this, but that was like the best looking car Porsche even came out with. The, the Mark yeah. 1 Macan, whatever you want to call it so good yeah it's like they they nailed it with that car it, as, i think i think as porsche does i think when nissan saw the macan they went oh that's what we wanted the rogue to be back in the day mm. or the murano you know they oh, wanted yeah, like because yeah. they wanted that they used to they they used the a phrase that i hate i hate it when people call the city a concrete jungle mm-hmm. drives me nuts but they wanted it to be like the the non-off-road suv for the street it's for the concrete jungle and then, you know, it was many years later that Porsche comes out with the Macan, but it's like the Macan just made the best Murano. So before we wrap up, is it, what's what's next, whether it's for the business, whether it's for your own personal cars, what's on your mind? Because I know you're, the wheels are always turning. And if I don't ask, I don't find out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the big thing business-wise is picking up some, some much bigger customers. We want to end up doing some work for boutique OEMs, um, small volume uh, full car manufacturers yeah um so the likes of of pagani or koenigsegg or, or companies like that that'd be really cool to see your parts in those cars yeah yeah that that's really the the niche that we're going for and we've started the discussion with a couple um or specifically one one auto manufacturer um about supplying products for them and we're kind of getting into the the early days um into their their process so um yeah, that that's super exciting, and uh, 
and we have a couple other bigger projects for customers that are in the pipeline and um, specifically we have a customer who's uh a little crazy but uh is wanting to build a xjr14 i i believe that's the right it sounds like it's together. either a jet or a jaguar it is a jaguar <laughs> but it's a jaguar le mans car from the 90s and uh. he has a uh toy model of it and wants us to design the body for a full-size car wow yeah and uh this guy this guy's actually super interesting but uh he in the in the recession of 09 uh made the very smart decision of buying up a whole bunch of what if i remember correctly m120s which is the mercedes v12 engine that's in the in the zonda so he has like five of those that he bought up in 09 when they were real cheap and gas was expensive and nobody wanted V12s. Those are seven liter V12s, right? Yeah. Yeah, I believe so. They came out of SL65. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's what's going in this as well. So wow. it's going to be uh, crazy looking and sound equally as crazy and uh, will be a really cool project to be a part of. Um, and he's actually a guy who who's done a whole bunch of other projects. He's rebuilt himself a, a uh, replica gt40 um he has a project with a one gz which is basically two two jz's put together to make a v12 so this guy's got a v12 problem i love is, it what a good problem to have i i am so a fan <laughs> i'm so thankful there's people like that in the world and i'm thankful there's people like you in the world because you have encouraged me to do things that i am too scared to do I jump in the deep end and just try it. And yeah. I, I do thank you for that. And, you know, you've continued to be a source of inspiration and stress in my life. Because usually I'm terrified by every move you make. I'm like, yeah. David! I'll, uh, I'll keep on pushing. But thanks for being here. And uh, that's going to wrap this up. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Respect the Drive podcast. And, uh, I mean, I guess does it need to be said? Don't forget to respect the drive. Mm-hmm.